Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, July 10th, we are studying Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 31. We've seen the cycle of Judges start with Othniel. Now we'll see that cycle repeat with Ehud. We'll also get a taste for the unorthodox way the Lord chooses and uses his judges. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Dan Speckard. Pastor Speckard serves at Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Pastor Speckard, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you for having me, Pastor Apple. As we get started this morning, Pastor Speckard, let's talk a little context here in the book of Judges. We have seen one judge, pretty short, but that basic cycle has been laid out. We've seen it in practice. What do we need to know from that context, from the book as a whole, that will help us understand what's going on today with Ehud? Yeah, the uh, the cycle, uh, as you noted, which which you began yesterday and, and are going to continue with now uh, throughout the bulk of the book of Judges, uh, has begun. And what we have today is uh, a story that I think uh, you know lives uh, pretty large in a lot of our, our memories from Sunday school. Uh, it's just a, a fascinating, um, kind of exciting uh, story of uh, you know uh, violence and conquest, and it's the type of thing that uh, that young boys in particular uh, really get excited about. Um, but from a, a broader and maybe more mature uh, perspective, <laughs> what we see happening here uh, is is God once again uh, rescuing His people who who are in need of redemption, uh, you know, in large part due to their own evil uh, and their own misdeeds. And I think that what um, you know, very broadly, uh, what we as New Testament Christians can be taking from this particular as, uh, uh, portion of Judges uh, and, and, and the book as a whole uh, is, is, one, uh, in everything we ought to be seeing uh, here a foreshadowing of what God is going to accomplish uh, through His Son. He's chosen His people. Uh, his people need to be uh, protected and preserved, and so He is uh, doing so in order to bring about uh, the savior of the whole world, and, and you know the book of Judges, uh, is, in addition to just being a, an aspect of the history uh, of that uh, fulfillment of the promise on God's part, uh, also gives us a lot to uh, consider in looking forward to the coming of Christ as we make our way through the uh, Old Testament. Uh, in addition, the um, just that that cycle of, of uh, uh, rebellion and rescue is going to ring very familiar within the life of. Uh, all Christians, as we, uh, you know, our own selves are constantly rebelling against God and his law and are constantly in need of rescue through the forgiveness of sins uh, won by Christ. Um, One other thing, just in terms of context, that uh, might be particularly um, interesting to to your American listeners, you know, the whole book of Judges uh, really gives us a picture of what uh, localized self-governance looks like, uh, in the sense that, you know, the Israelites have, have been to Sinai, God has given their law, uh, they've inhabited the land uh, to, to greater or lesser extent under Joshua, 
And now they have an opportunity simply to uh, live as God's people according to uh, the, the statutes that God had established. Uh, and the challenge they run into is uh, they're, they're not able to do so. And they uh, consistently depart from the way that God had uh, set forth for them. And because of that, they were constantly descending either into kind of this chaotic anarchy uh, or uh, trending towards um, sort of a, a subjection under foreign despots. And I guess my, my point is that Americans um, will find this all to be very familiar as we, on, in our own political uh, world, are constantly trying to, to navigate the desire for self-governance and also the uh, occasional necessity for a more sort of centralized, um, far-reaching power to keep things under control. It's all very fascinating and I think very uh, appropriate to be studying today. You're right. There is a certain uh, parallel between the experience of Israel in the book of Judges and the way the American colonies came together, the Articles of Confederation, the move to the Constitution. And I'm no expert on, on American history, but that, that general sort of move from more localized power toward centralized power of sorts. I mean, you see it in our in our history. And that struggle does seem apparent within the book of Judges. And it's it's at least maybe it's worth a, a minute or two of, of reflecting on what's the what's the move that's being made. On the one hand, the book of Judges as a whole is not portrayed as some some sort of ideal. This this localized power that we see is not it's not what what they're looking for. There's by the end of the book, you know, everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, and of course, the beginning of the book says all of that is evil in the Lord's eyes. So this is not a not a good time. This localized power, and yet there's also as the history of Israel goes forward, and this goes beyond the scope of this study, but the the move to a king, there's some there's a little bit of ambiguity there as to how good that ends up being for the people of Israel as well. I, I think as I've, I've started to reflect a little bit on this in the book of Judges, I think all of it points us toward the need for the Lord to be king, which is a theme in the Old Testament and is fulfilled in the kingdom that our Lord Jesus Christ brings by his death and his resurrection, that, that all of this sort of human government and the, the effects that, that it brings for good or for ill all point us toward our need for the true kingdom that our Lord Jesus Christ brings. What do you think, Pastor Speckard? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, if there's if there's one thing we know from human history, it's that uh, all human governance is flawed. Um, and you're you know what you said about the Book of Judges not being a a high point in the history of Israel. Boy, is that exactly right? I mean, they they um, uh, do not fare well in terms of the opportunity they're given to. Uh, simply live live according to what God had uh, established for them, and uh, you know eventually when you get to the book of First uh, um, and Second Samuel, and, and you're starting to um, transition towards the monarchy, um, you know if you've been through Judges, you kind of uh, like the Israelites. You want a good, strong king who's going to keep the people uh, in line and protect them from their enemies, um, but that comes with its own challenges. Um, I'm reminded of the story within you know of the American context. Um, at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, uh, Benjamin Franklin was reportedly asked, uh, after it wrapped up, somebody said, well, what form of government do we have, a, uh, a monarchy or a republic? Uh, and he said, a republic, if you can keep it, uh, which is to say that, 
you know, the republic, the, the concept of localized governance um, is an ideal in that it allows each household uh, to uh, sort of be a kingdom of God unto themselves, where God's word and, uh, and God's gifts prevail. Um, the challenge is in our sin, we don't keep it. Uh, we depart as individuals, as households, as communities, uh, as congregations, you know, in our context, uh, we depart with such consistency that we really um, uh, we pave the way for more centralized top-down power to come in out of necessity. And you see that within the history of Israel also. But the overall point, as you noted, is that what this all demonstrates is how desperately we need the Lord to reign in each heart, at each table, uh, in every town, uh, in every place. Apart from that, uh, there's, not, uh, there's not much hope for uh, any, any form of human governance, uh, localized or centralized. All of it does, I think, add more appreciation for the good news that is preached when Jesus comes by John, by Jesus, by his disciples, that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When you've experienced all of this failed kingship, whatever form it is taken, to see God reigning for your good, for your forgiveness, by his grace in the Lord Jesus Christ just becomes that much more soothing of a gospel message. And so as, as we as we see throughout this book of Judges, and we're only we're only dipping our toes in right now, we're gonna keep going deeper uh, in future studies. But as, as we see the the ins and outs, the gruesomeness of, of much of this, as you said, this is one of those very memorable accounts from the book of Judges, just because of, of how gruesome, how violent it is. And, and as you said, we were talking about this before the show, I've got it on good authority from my wife, a former fifth grade religion teacher, who, who knows that this is the favorite account in the scriptures of fifth grade boys. So with with that introduction, let's let's start dip, dipping in ourselves and see see what we've got here today in Judges chapter 3 beginning at verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. All right, we'll, we'll pause there. This is the, the first part of the cycle of the book of Judges, where the people of Israel do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. That is, they, they fall into idolatry. It's not just generic evil. This is idolatry that we're talking about. And he sells them into the hand of one of their enemies. So take us into the specifics of this case here, Pastor Speckard. Yeah, well, I love that you pointed out that the evil they're doing is specifically idolatry, because I don't, um, I think, you know, just bearing in mind the relationship between God and his people, um, it's not just that the people aren't, um, you know, following the commandments as, as God had laid them out or, or clinging to the book of the covenant that was given uh, at Sinai, but they are, they're literally chasing after other gods. I mean, they're, um, they're not just sort of misbehaving but they are wantonly departing from the uh, relationship that God had established with them. And, you know, just bear that in mind as we move forward, as we see, um, uh, certainly in this account, but, but increasingly in Judges, um, you know, God seeming to act very, um, even violently at times, uh, will we'll bear in mind the um, uh, circumstances the Israelites were bringing upon themselves, whereby God was 
Um, it's amazing that God redeems them at all, given their, their total lack of fidelity and love for him in spite of everything he had done uh, for them to this point. In this particular case, um, the, uh, you know, the book of Judges produces such great kind of villains. Um, and the king of Moab, uh, Iglon, uh, is, is really one of the uh, most memorable uh, bad guys, if you will, uh, in the scriptures. He's kind of this, uh, as we'll see, this Jabba the Hutt character. Um, you know, he's described as extremely obese. And he, uh, you know, kind of puts together this alliance um, you know, the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Amalekites, these are all sort of uh, distant relatives of the Israelites uh, surrounding the Promised Land. And together, those three uh, groups are, are, you know, they're hardly nations, but, but kind of um, little nations, uh, attack the Promised Land and, and capture uh, the city of Palms, which is Jericho. And that's significant because you'll recall from Joshua, Jericho was, was really the first major conquest uh, under Joshua, when the Israelites entered into the Promised Land, uh, and now they've now they've lost possession of that, and uh, King Eglon is, um, uh, you know, ruling over the Israelites in such a way that they're having to pay regular tribute to to him, and he's uh, literally getting fat upon the uh, his subjugation of God's people. Um, so you know, this is this is just another example of how God. Uh, so often when dealing with uh, sinners, uh, allows them to receive the consequence of their sin. So the people want to chase after the false gods uh, of, of, say, the Moabites or, or the surrounding nations. Uh, well, God gives them over to their hand then and says, this is what it looks like to uh, be ruled by them rather than me. And the Israelites suffer greatly for it. As you were talking there about, about Eglon particularly, I was reminded of the conversation that we had yesterday concerning Othniel and the ruler of Mesopotamia that comes along, Cushan Rishathaim. And, and my guest pointed out that that name, Rishathaim, means a, a double evil. So the, the people of Israel had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. And so the Lord handed them a double double evil by giving them this king to rule over them. Here's This is what you wanted? Okay, you're going to see that it's actually doubly evil. And, and I think, I mean, a similar thing we could say is going on in this case, where again, the people fall into that evil of idolatry. And so he's going to give them a very a graphic picture of what idolatry looks like in this King Eglon. And I've, I've never really thought about that before, but I, I think it works because the scriptures say in several places that when we worship an idol, we become like that idol. And so to see idolatry as something that leads to gluttony, something that leads to obesity and not necessarily a physical obesity as we see the picture of, of King Eglon, but, but obesity in the sense of just living in uh, self-indulgence, I think that's the word I'm looking for, that, yeah. that that is where idolatry leads. And of course, as, as we'll see the end that King Eglon finally, finally meets, how all of this ultimately ends for those who go down the route of idolatry, I think is a, it's a fascinating way to look at this text. And I, I do think it, it opens up some more theo theological conversation there as to why idolatry is so bad. I mean, this goes back to what we were saying at the very beginning, that the evil is idolatry, first and foremost. The breaking of the other commandments is bad, it is evil, it is not good for anyone. But I think sometimes we tend to minimize idolatry 
in in a certain respect. We don't think that it's as bad as it really is. And and here the Lord gives us a picture that no idolatry really is that bad, and it leads to all this other evil. And, and the picture that we see of that evil in in Eglon particularly is well, it's it's quite memorable. It's it's grotesque, and and it really just I mean, it's, it sticks in our minds. Right, and that's the the end of sin is always grotesque. I mean, that's the uh, that's precisely the thing is the reason that people chase after idols. Uh, you know, whether we're talking about the Israelites uh, in the era of the judges or, you know, the idols we make for ourselves uh, in this day, um, we're always looking to uh, sort of satisfy some internal passion or desire, but satisfy it in the way, uh, not in the way that God has given, uh, but in a way of our own making. So uh, we might imagine here that the Israelites, uh, you know, saw that the Moabite king was uh, was fat and happy, and they wanted that same, you know, that same type of temporal comfort for themselves, and so they pursue it, they depart from what God has given. And you see, particularly in this case, uh, what the end of trying to satisfy, trying to self-indulge uh, on your own looks like with King Eglon. And it's not a pretty picture. And that is, I mean, you name the sin. Um, the end of it is always this uh, disgusting, uh, uh, disturbing reality. But so it goes when you depart from what God has given. Um, and that's, you know, a lesson the Israelites are going to learn uh, over and over again throughout their salvation, the, the history of their salvation in the Old Testament. Now, King Eglon, and I can't remember if you mentioned this yet, Pastor Specker, King Eglon is of Moab, but he also gathers this alliance of Ammonites and Amalekites. And these tribes particularly are related to the people of Israel. Have you, do we get that and I forgot, or, or do we need to still mention that? I think we just just uh, breezed by it, but yeah, the the Moabites uh, descend from uh, Lot, uh, so they're they're essentially distant cousins uh, of the Israelites, and uh, because of that, it's sort of interesting. They're not listed uh, specifically in kind of the list of enemies that you see at the beginning of Judges chapter three. Uh, neither are they marked for uh, total destruction by God. Um, the uh, Amalekites, though, uh, one of the other nations that. King Eglon had gathered to him uh, for this conquest. Uh, we have seen them before. They they actually attacked the uh, uh, the Israelites shortly after the Exodus, even before they got to Sinai. Uh, and because of that, uh, because of that, uh, they are a nation that will uh, eventually be uh, sort of wiped from the face of the earth uh, by the Israelites. It doesn't happen for a while, but um, so yeah, these are. It's just kind of an interesting uh, dynamic that these are sort of kinfolk of the Israelites, uh, but now warring against them. Hmm. So the people of Israel serve Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. That's verse 14. And then the, the narrative continues. Here comes the deliverer. And it's a man named Ehud. So I'll read a little farther here in Judges chapter 3. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. I think I'll pause there because we're going to be coming up on a break not too long. So here, here we get the scene is set for the deliverer, and it's Ehud. Now, I mentioned at the beginning, the Lord throughout the book of Judges will often choose unorthodox or unexpected people as his deliverers in the book of Judges. How does Ehud fit that bill? 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's uh, really the, um, the most striking thing about this account, uh, is that Ehud is, um, uh, from what the author of Judges gives us, not who you would expect in a judge or a deliverer. And um, maybe right off the bat, we should point out that that deliverer language in the Hebrew, that's, that's Messiah, um, which I'm pretty sure uh, is, is the only time in the book of Judges you see that construction where the, uh, the judge is called that. So right away, New Testament Christians are going to be uh, looking at that um, in a different light, because, of course, we know uh, who the, the Messiah with a capital M is. Um, but what's funny is even knowing that, then as we start to have Ehud described, um, he doesn't sound like a savior. Uh, for one thing, he's left-handed, which um, in, in his culture uh, would have been um, uh, a not insignificant uh, handicap. In fact, the Hebrew uh, for uh, uh, left-handedness essentially means um, impaired or handicapped as to the right hand. Um, and, and, you know, I read at least one commentator who suggests that uh, the rest of the narrative makes it clear that um, Ehud might not have been born left-handed, uh, but rather was left-handed by way of some sort of uh, crippling injury to his right hand. Uh, so you kind of get the picture of this. I mean, this is not a mighty warrior. Uh, this is not somebody who you would necessarily expect to uh, take down the uh, king of the Moabites, who is such a, um, a physically imposing uh, person, apparently. Um, nevertheless, that is who God has chosen uh, from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin, ironically, means son of the right hand. Uh, and then, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the Benjamin Benjaminites uh, come to be um, associated with left-handedness, which is kind of a funny thing. Um, but but Ehud uh, has this plan that rests entirely upon him being something other than you would expect uh, for the person that God has chosen to save his people. Ehud does, I think, stand in a bit of contrast to Othniel in this sense. And, and we don't get a ton of detail about Othniel in terms of the narrative of, of what he does like we will with Ehud here. But Othniel is is portrayed, you remember earlier in the book of Judges in chapter 1, we get this recounting of how Othniel went and captured a, a city according to Caleb's command. So Othniel is, is seen a bit more as a, a warrior, a fighter, and Ehud, well, he's a lot more secretive. As you said, he's going to take advantage of this left-handedness, which maybe because he's crippled in the right hand literally or or simply this is you know he's it's a it's a secretiveness that we see here with Ehud rather than uh, just an open attack which again i mean it, it i guess it makes sense in the context to a degree but it's not it's not the savior that perhaps you're looking for which again is is going to be a theme that we will see throughout the book of judges where the Lord is going, and, and throughout the scriptures, and, and perhaps we can spend some time reflecting on that a bit later, that, that the Lord will often send a Savior in an unexpected way. And Ehud, the left-handed son of my right hand, <laughs> is, is among the first here in the book of Judges. We'll, we'll see more of Ehud's deliverance on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFU. We're going to take that short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around.
I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa, host of Thy Strong Word, taking your questions as we go through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter. Let's read together with guest pastors from around the country and the church around the world, taking chapters and verses together in context, every passage fitting together in the Lord Jesus, because He is the Word of God. Let's read together. Thy Strong Word, weekday mornings at 11 on Worldwide KFUO. Underwritten by Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHFmissions.org. LCMS Disaster Response and Training provides guidance and counsel to congregations seeking to show mercy to their neighbors before, during, and after disasters. From congregation preparedness to equipping volunteers in our Lutheran Early Response Team training, we can help you engage your community, particularly those who are suffering in any way with the love of Christ. For more information, you can follow us on Facebook, keyword LCMS Disaster Response, or visit our website at lcms.org forward slash disaster. Love your enemies. Kill the kafir who brought his false god to the eagle's nest. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Discover a world where knowing Jesus is a matter of life and death. Wandlighter Theater presents Escape from the Eagle's Nest. Saturday mornings at 11 on Worldwide KFUO. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, July 10th, and we are studying Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 31. Our guest this morning is Pastor Dan Speckard. He serves at Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Chosen deliverer, Ehud, the left-handed Benjaminite, he's going to be judged, not like Othniel, where he's going to openly come and attack right away, but he's doing this in a more secretive way. And you said that he he sets up the plan that's based entirely upon his left-handedness, whether that's because of a, a crippled injury or he's simply left-handed. That's how he sets it up. And there's there's a few details here in the text and the way that Ehud does this that maybe we miss in our context because generally people don't walk around uh, wearing swords anymore. So how does, how does Ehud accomplish this secretiveness of his opening act? Right. So as we'll see, uh, you know, the whole, the whole plan rests upon him being able to uh, get a one-on-one meeting with King Iguan um, and, and being able to pack a, a sword into the, uh, you know, on his body into the meeting. And typically if you're uh, a, uh, the type of person in this era who's going to be carrying a sword, you're right-handed, and your sword then is strapped to your uh, your left thigh. You kind of reach across in order to, to draw your weapon as opposed to trying to reach straight down. That doesn't, doesn't work as well. Um, in this case, because uh, Ehud is left-handed, uh, the sword winds up on his right thigh, as we'll, uh, as we'll read, and this um, combined perhaps with the fact that he doesn't look like uh, like a warrior, you wouldn't uh, clearly the the guards of uh, King Iglon don't consider him to be much of a threat. Uh, this allows him to uh, you know get as close as as you would like with uh, the king of Moab uh, with a sword, and that sort of um, that secrecy that that trick uh, becomes the means by which he he delivers uh, God's people. And I was just gonna to, to follow up on our conversation before the break. I think it's really important to to recognize kind of the uh, dichotomy here with King Eglon, you get, you get exactly what you would expect. Um, you know, the, 
the ruler of uh, uh, sort of a warring nation that is growing fat upon the tribute of vassal states, he looks 100% uh, like what you would expect him to look like. And people um, you know, who are drawn to that wind up looking more and more uh, like that. So it goes with sin, as we were discussing at the start of the show. Uh, you know, the, the further we are drawn into idolatry, uh, the further we, we allow our passions to be satisfied uh, by things other than uh, that which God has given, the more and more we look like you would expect us to look. On the contrary, or I should say, you know, on the, the sort of opposite tact, uh, God uh, so regularly delivers us in ways that you would not expect. Um, you know, whether you're talking about, as we'll discuss later, uh, what the Messiah with a capital M, Jesus, would wind up looking like, what Ehud looks like here. Uh, and it has to be that way, because we've seen what happens when our expectations are met. Uh, our expectations are flawed, and they take us down the wrong path. God works for us in unexpected ways, uh, very often so that we would learn simply to trust him, rather than thinking, ah, yes, this this is the plan I would have come up with to God. Well, no, we, we don't, our plans are no good. God works in unexpected ways to demonstrate his superiority, um, you know, from, from start to finish. Mm, right. That, that's a good point because I, I think that, I think that in our sinful nature, we would expect, uh, how do I, how do I say this? We would expect that, the way of King Eglon, that, that that's what we're looking for. Like, we would think that that's the way of, of victory and the way of Ehud, the way of the Lord. Well, that's that's not the way of victory. And yet the Lord reverses our expectations. Maybe I think what I'm, what I'm trying to, to get at is, is what's sometimes talked about as the theology of the cross, that the Lord works through weakness and suffering to bring about his victory rather than working through what looks like power and glory to human eyes. The, the Lord works the opposite way. So he reverses our expectations and he shows us what, you know, we, we would think, oh, what the life that Eglon's living in luxury and riches, that's what we want. And the Lord shows us its true end. And, and then we would think, well, the life of, of suffering and weakness, that's not what I want. And yet the Lord, through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, through the cross, shows us that is, that is, in fact, the way that he does bring us into eternal life. So I think he, yeah, he reverses our expectations. And, and this account is, is another example of that from the scriptures. Any more comments on that? Otherwise, I'll, I'll keep reading in the text. So we, we're kind of we're, we're toying with the end here already. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that the um uh let, maybe let's see what what Ehud does here and then we'll right. see just the extent to which the expectations are reversed here. Right, right. Okay, so we've read that Ehud is a left-handed man. He's made himself this double-edged sword. It's a cubit long, which is 18 inches. He's got it on his right thigh. That's unexpected. He's coming to bring in the tribute to Eglon king of Moab, who's a very fat man. We're picking up now in verse 18. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. 
and the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. All right, there, there is the gruesome detail in all of its gory. So, Pastor Speckard, I mean, keep, keep taking us through this. So, Ehud's got this plan that involves him being left-handed to get close access to the king without seeming like a threat. How does he, how does he make this work? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's precisely what he does. He, he sends away, you know, his attendants, his own attendants, who would have been carrying the tribute. So now he's isolated. He turns back, uh, you know, careful readers of Scripture will remember uh, Gilgal uh, from Joshua chapter 4 is, is kind of an important place for the Israelites. They had, when they had just crossed over the Jordan River, Joshua instructed one man from each tribe to, uh, to bring a rock from the river, and they, Gilgal means circle of stones. And so you have these, these 12 stones uh, as kind of a, a uh, what's supposed to be an everlasting uh, testament to God's deliverance of his people. Well, now apparently idols have, have sprung up there, presumably foreign idols, maybe of the Moabites. Um, and it's in that place that uh, Ehud turns back. He's alone. Um, he, he looks the part, uh, perhaps, of somebody who is going to, uh, you know, seek to... to Press some personal advantage by having a uh, party with the king. You might imagine from King Eglon's perspective, this looks like maybe a betrayer, right? This looks like a Benedict Arnold, or um, uh, if you've seen the movie uh, 300, which is a, you want to talk about grotesque, um, mm-hmm. certainly that's an example. But the, uh, the uh, Spartan traitor, um, Ah, and his name escapes me now, uh, but the, he wasn't allowed to serve in the army, and so he ends up betraying the Spartans who were, who were guarding the pass of Thermopylae, and he shows Xerxes and the Persians the way around. Well, this is maybe what Ehud looks like uh, to King Aglon, um, so he's happy to, to let, uh, let this potential traitor uh, speak his part. And then you just have this awesome moment in, in the book of Judges uh, where the, the judge says, I have a, um, a message from God for you. And you get the sense that, you know, maybe King Eglon suspects that this is not quite right. He starts to get up, but by that time it's too late. Uh, the sword is in his belly. And then we get this really, this really gory description of what the end of sin looks like. Uh, not just death, but humiliating death, uh, death with no, um, you know, no pride left over, death totally bereft of any glory. Um, this is the end of sin. Their Lord was dead on the floor, uh, literally uh, dying in a pool of his own feces. Um, you know, setting aside the, the appeal this has for fifth grade boys, um, I think that we as mature Christians can, you know, really ought to, um, uh, you know, recognize um, the path, uh, all other paths besides that of righteousness lead here. Um, and indeed, this is the path that the Israelites had been on, uh, had put themselves on, but now Ehud, uh, or I should say God, through Ehud, is intervening 
for their sake. Um, you know, we could we could talk quite a bit more about uh, you know some of the some of the specific details. You know, the, like the guards who are embarrassed that their lord has taken so long to relieve himself. The whole thing is just humiliating for King Iglan. Um, but so it goes. So it goes when you oppose uh, the will of God, um, and that's something we do well to bear in mind. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, all all joking about it aside, or all snickering at it aside, this is a, a very gruesome but realistic picture of the end of sin, and and we do well to to pay attention to it, lest we think that sin is is good. I mean, that's I think that's been a big part of our conversation so far is that we we in our sinful nature expect sin to lead to some kind of glory for ourselves, some sort of easy, luxurious life. And and here, Ehud's murder, uh, murder's not the right word, Ehud's exacting of God's vengeance on King Eglon. This is the true picture of, of what happens to sin in the end. Sometimes it happens in this life, as, as Eglon experiences, but if it doesn't happen in this life, this is the end that sin meets at the final judgment. And again, I mean, all of this is, is pointing us toward our Lord Jesus Christ as the true King, as the righteous judge, as the one to, to whom we must be subject, not, not out of some sort of sense of, of obedience or, or needing to give him something, but because he's the only one that can give us what we actually need, the, the righteousness, the goodness that, that we actually need and not what our sinful nature desires. And so to see this, ugly, gory, gruesome picture here of of Ehud's slaughtering of King Eglon is not just a matter for fifth, fifth grade boys to find something memorable and interesting in the Bible, but it really is a matter for all of us as Christians to recognize the true end of our sin and, and to rejoice all the more than in how our Lord Jesus Christ delivers us from this dung heap and gives yeah. us his eternal treasure. Yeah, and and the thing is, you know, the, the the challenge of it is the reason we actually do need to to reflect upon uh, passages like this is that, um, you know, sin sin is so deceptive in that it appears to um, it always its appeal is always that momentary high, right? That that by by departing from what God has given, uh, by doing what you want to do. As opposed, to, as opposed to what God has given you to do, uh, you are going to achieve or accomplish or feel something, you know, so, so good. But then once you've, once you've had that high, then the trajectory is straight down. So, you know, Adam and Eve, you know, Eve takes the fruit, you will be like God. Um, from the moment of, of biting into the fruit, everything is, is downhill from there. Uh, in the worst possible way. Um, I think many of us will know from our own lives that the sins we commit, uh, particularly sins that are, are maybe uh, besetting, right, those, those afflicting temptations that, that so, many, uh, so many of us struggle with, um, in the moment of, of whatever act, it, it feels good to do it. And then what you're left with afterwards is just this, just this shame, this, this, you know, utter disgust with yourself, um, and, and that's how sin goes. You start with this false high and then, you know, descend downward towards, um, uh, you know, just this grotesque end. On the contrary, or I should say conversely, the, the gospel um, so often 
um, seems to start at a low point, right? So, for instance, repentance. Repentance doesn't feel good. Um, repentance is not not always an easy uh, an easy thing. We think about purgation, right? The uh, the burning of uh, of being cleansed. Uh, so you start with that that seeming low, but then once you are on the gospel path, everything is ascending, right? So whereas sin starts high and goes downward, uh, the gospel so often meets you at that low point, but then it's all uh, ascending upward towards glory. Um, and you know, you name the aspect of Christian theology: incarnational, sacramental. You know, we start with these seemingly low, insignificant, or even, um, you know, from a worldly perspective, uh, weak things. And then we ascend in Christ towards eternal, um, unending, perfect glory. And, uh, you know, this is just a, just a, a little glimpse of that here in the book of Judges. So Ehud has killed the king, but the the army's still a matter, I mean, the, the people are still there. So the enemies, the Moabites, still need to be dealt with. That's where he goes next. We're in Judges 3 now in verse 26. Ehud escaped while they, that's the servants, delayed. And he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. That's the end of Ehud's account. So, Pastor Specker, this is now the Lord is going to deliver not only the king of his enemies into his people's hands, but he's going to deliver the entire people into their hands. He's going to give a complete victory to his people, not just a halfway victory. Take us into this last part of the account. Yeah, and I, I'm, no, I'm no military strategist uh, by any stretch, but you can kind of, kind of get a picture here of uh, the Moabites discover their, their slain king and naturally pursue uh, pursue Ehud, the assassin. And, you know, Ehud, suspecting this or knowing this was going to, going to happen, um, escapes towards the hill country of Ephraim, um, which, you know, perhaps is further into the Holy Land than the Moabites uh, would have normally ventured. And then Ehud rallies the, uh, his own tribe, the Benjaminites, and then, of course, the, uh, the tribe of Ephraim also, um, such that as the Moabites are sucked in in their pursuit of the judge, uh, the Israelites are able to circle back towards the uh, the Jordan River and the fords there, and now the Moabites are cut off. So Jericho is inside the river. That's maybe the um, the height of their. I mean, that's where the palace was uh, of King Eglon. That's um, uh, where they were most comfortable within uh, the land of Canaan. Well, now they're trying to get back just to Moab. They're trying to go back across the river, but the Israelites meet them there, and of course the Lord uh, delivers the. Uh, Moabites into the hand of the Israelites, and uh, the victory is uh, resounding uh, for God's people. Hmm. And and the land is given rest for eighty years. There's the I mean that's the full cycle. We've seen the the descent into apostasy, the the selling into slavery. The judge delivers them at the Lord's work, and then there is rest for a time. This time it's 
80 years. So there, there you get the full cycle there with, with Ehud. Now, we also have verse 31 as a part of our text today, Pastor Specker. Throughout the book of Judges, you have both what are often referred to as major judges and minor judges, not necessarily because of how important they were, but mostly because of how much space they get within the book. And so Ehud would be one of the major judges because we get a lot of his narrative. Shamgar gets one verse, <laughs> but we need yeah. to talk a little bit about Shamgar. So Judges 3.31 says this, After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. So not much there. What, what should we know about Shamgar? Yeah, not a lot to know. Um, what's interesting is that Shamgar is not really a, a Hebrew name, um, and and you know Anath doesn't really show up in uh, in any of the um, genealogies we have genealogies we have throughout uh, the Old Testament. So um, it's not you couldn't say with certainty, but uh, you get the impression that this might have been uh, a Canaanite, uh, not an Israelite. Um, nevertheless, God clearly used him to uh, protect the Israelites, and at this stage in the era of judges, uh, you know, the Philistines aren't really, um, they're not the problem now that they will become for the people of Israel. It's towards the end of the book of Judges and, and at the beginning of the monarchy that we, uh, the Philistines are kind of the primary foil uh, to uh, obviously David, but also Samson. Um, they're not that yet, but um, you almost get, get a sense that um, uh, within the narrative, the author of Judges includes this the seemingly insignificant judge um, as a bit of foreshadowing, right? So you're going to, uh, we have this reference to the Philistines and we're going to hear from them later. And even the way that they're subdued with kind of an irregular weapon, an ox goad, um, you know, that's going to, we're going to hear an echo of that later with Samson, who uh, who kills, a, I think, a thousand Philistines with the uh, jawbone of a, a, a donkey. Um, you know, you don't want to make too much of just one, uh, one verse, but it is it is an interesting inclusion, and and what it does is it extends uh, what we had there in verse thirty, and what you referenced uh, the rest, uh, the rest that was given to the people of Israel. And I know this is something you uh, have talked about already already in the book of Judges, and you you kind of have to keep coming back to it. The work of the judges, uh, this is the reward, rest for the people, and I think. That is something we do well to consider, uh, that it's not, um, even as the work involves military conquest, um, the end goal does not seem to be expanding the empire, uh, does not seem to be, uh, you know, lasting military might. All the Lord is wanting for his people, apparently, is for them to be able to live in peace, um, to live, you know, as we so often pray from First Timothy chapter 2, quiet and peaceable lives. And this helps us maybe circle back uh, to what we were discussing in the beginning with the context of the book of Judges and, and the concept of self-governance. Um, God has given what is necessary for Christian individuals, households, and communities to get along, for his people to simply... Uh, live as those who are protected and preserved uh, by the creator of all things. And we don't need more than that. Um, I think that so often the strain the Israelites did and the strain we do in our own life uh, is, is um, uh, you know, those idols that, that seem to offer us more than just peace and rest. 
Um, and it's precisely when we start desiring more than the peace and the rest that God has given uh, that we get ourselves into trouble. And so when our Lord restores the Israelites through his judges, uh, restores sinners through his gospel, it's not restoring them, you know, to now suddenly I'm on the throne, but rather it's restoring me to uh, just the, the life of, of simple trust uh, that God has given Christians to live, um, if that makes sense. It it does. And I think the, the rest that happens at the end of each judges cycle is the the foil, I'm not sure if I'm using that word right, the foil of the picture that we saw with, with Eglon. It's it's the, the counter picture of it. So if, if Eglon is the picture of where our sin leads and our idolatry, when we de- desire those things that God has not actually given, that's, that's the picture that we see in the death of King Eglon. The rest that comes when the judge delivers his people, that's, that's the opposite picture. That's the picture when, when we trust the Lord to reign, when we trust his gifts as he's given them to be good and not desire more than that or something better than that, but simply live, I mean, as the, as the catechisms, live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. That rest, that's the picture that we're looking for. And, and when we look to the Lord for that rest, I mean, we, we, that's the exact opposite of the picture that we see with, with King Eglon. Uh, Pastor Specker, we've got about four minutes here before for our study's done. I mean, feel free to respond to that and, and summarize, wrap things up. Use this text to, to point us to, to Christ. We talked about that at the very beginning, that, that all of this is pointing us forward to Christ. H- how do we see that here in Judges 3? Yeah, well, I think your listeners are probably already making the connections to uh, New Testament Christianity and the uh, the way that God works and how different that looks uh, when compared to the way that the world works. Uh, so here we see this left-handed, perhaps crippled uh, judge uh, take down this, um, you know, morbidly obese sort of archetype of uh, of of human power uh, in King uh, Eglon, uh, Eglon, and um, how similar is that uh, to the way that God worked throughout the um, uh, Old Testament? The way that God worked certainly in the ministry of Jesus. I mean, Jesus did not come as a mighty warrior. Uh, our Lord did not look uh, like the uh, King of Creation uh, when He was born to Mary. Uh, he certainly didn't look like. Uh, the Savior of the world, when he he entered into Jerusalem, constantly Jesus looked like less than he was, uh, and nevertheless accomplished so much more than any you know any human being appearing in might and power uh, could have could have possibly done. Um, in the in the uh, book of Isaiah, the uh, servant songs in Isaiah chapter uh, 53, uh, we're reminded that uh, you know the the. The Messiah who is to come will have no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Um, the gospel of Christ crucified and risen does not always look majestic from an earthly perspective, and yet it is precisely what, uh, what saves us. And so it goes with baptism, so it goes with confession and absolution and the Lord's Supper. I mean, what is this water and this promise, these words spoken by a pastor, this bread and wine? How can these things deliver uh, the gifts that Christians uh, so desperately need? Um, and it is precisely because they don't look like they would 
that we have to receive them purely in, in faith, trusting that God uh, does what he says and says what he does, um, setting aside our expectations and our desires that lead us towards the path of King Eglon, and simply trusting that the Deliverer, the Savior, the Messiah that God has given in Jesus and the Gospel of Jesus uh, is enough. Um, And it's once you have uh, received that trust and embraced that trust, then and only then do you have that peace of God which surpasses all understanding and that rest, uh, as we say, rest in peace. It is only in trusting God's unorthodox, unexpected salvation uh, that we finally receive uh, what we're seeking. Right. And, and that, that rest that we receive then at the end is an even greater rest than is given here in the book of Judges, where it is an absence of war. But but the rest that we're looking for is that eternal rest. The book of Hebrews talks about that eternal rest that we're waiting for on the last day when all enemies are gone and there is no threat of that. And we live in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ forever. Pastor Dan Speckard is the pastor at Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois helping us this morning with Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 31. Pastor Speckard, thanks for being our guest again today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Where does sin lead? We think it leads to glory, to greatness. But the King Eglon gives us the picture. It leads to gluttony. It leads to self-indulgence. It leads to death. The most humiliating death you might imagine, death in a pool of one's own filth. This is not what we expect, but it's what we need to see that the Lord would show us the end of our own sin so that we would repent of our sin and trust in him alone. Look to him for deliverance. And that deliverance is seen here in Ehud, a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is perhaps not the deliverer we had expected. He comes as a, an infant born in Bethlehem to a virgin mother. He had no beauty or appearance that we should desire him, and yet he is the deliverer we need, the deliverer who earns our eternal rest by his death and resurrection. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week. <music>